Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gastola, and I'm joined by Rania Kalik. Hey, Rania. Hey, Kevin. It's our first show of 2019. It is. We're excited to be back. And for our first guest of the year, we have Aaron Matei, a good friend of the show. He's a contributor for The Nation. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Kevin and Rania. Hi. And uh, we want to start, I guess, you know, since the subject matter we're going to be getting in, I just want to preface our show by highlighting um, some of our qualifications for talking about what we're going to be talking about. I did want to say that in the time that, that you've been, uh, since we last had you on, Aaron, I've been uh, anointed uh, a person who's undermining the confidence in the justice system on behalf of, of Russia because of a show I do weekly with uh, John Kiriakou that airs on, on Sputnik. So I just, I wanted to like air that out. And then uh, Rania has some other qualifications um, that, that she's gotten. And I wonder what you've picked up through your work um, on Russiagate, because you can't have made friends with the elites who have followed your work. As people who have heard uh, you previously last year, we're going to be talking about the journalism that you do for the nation um, on the Russia investigation, uh, what Robert Mueller has been working on, and, and all the, the hysteria, basically, around uh, social media and, and alleged Russian influence. And so you did a piece for the nation that was headlined, um, uh, new studies show pundits are wrong about Russian social media involvement in U.S. politics, and we'll be talking about that. But first, Rania wanted to begin our show by talking about uh, what may be one of the the, 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 the peak examples of all of this hysteria, the, the, this thing that had been going around about sonic weapons attacking U.S. embassies, um, and, and how... It's actually not sonic weapons. It's probably crickets. <laughs> I mean, how does that even happen? Right? Like all these major news outlets just ran with this like anonymous CIA um, like claim that it was like Russia's sonic weapons were being used at the embassy in Havana to like hurt Americans. American diplomats. And it ended up being crickets. So can you talk a little bit about this and how absurd that whole situation was? And also how no one ever has to say sorry. Like being a mainstream journalist in America means never having to say you're sorry for being extremely and laughably wrong. Uh, so the, uh, the cricket story is, uh, is really, it's, you know, it's just the latest example of a wild claim uh, being made involving Russia. Uh, and in this case, pointing to Russia as the likely culprit of an attack on uh, U.S. diplomats in Cuba uh, by using this, like, you know, previously unknown, super advanced <laughs> microwave sonic weapon. And uh, it turns out that the culprit, as, as, as new reporting has, has shown, we don't know for sure that it's crickets. We can't say it for sure. But according to the, re according to the scientists, they say that actually the source of, 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 these injuries to these diplomats is likely <laughs> chirping crickets. And, and, uh, and, you know, back when this first came out, when it first came out that the U S diplomats in, 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 in Cuba were falling ill, this was the cause we got. This is what we were told is that it was because of some weird sonic weapon. And, uh, and ben, um, uh, um, NBC and MSNBC in particular were like ran with this, uh, what they were told by apparently some anonymous CIA officials, as you say, and blamed it on Russia. 
And of course, <laughs> understandably now, as I mean, like this could have been predicted that now that they've been contradicted by scientific studies, I haven't seen any corrections. No one has come forward to say, oh, look, actually, it looks like the sonic attack that we said was the work of Russians. It looks like it very well likely is, in fact, chirping crickets. Uh, so in, in short, in short, to you know, invoke you know social media terms, there are currently crickets about the crickets. <laughs> so then, are these are, are these Russian crickets? <laughs> yes, like that's the joke, right? That like maybe Putin d developed these critics in a lab in Moscow and then deployed them to Cuba and then used them to uh, to wound U.S. Diplomats. To do what? I'm not even I'm not even totally sure like what the injuries were. Yeah, apparently people were falling ill. You know, it's you know, like what does that mean? Like, did somebody get nauseous? Well, you know, <laughs> I I believe in the power of nature. You know, so it's like if these crickets did did really injure someone, I I think it's possible that people did fall ill. You know, I, I'm like, not ha I, like they got headaches. Like, no, I'm not. I'm actually curious. Like, what does that mean? Like, like I guess that might give me a headache. It's a good, it's a good question. I, you know, it, 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 it's a good question. You know, this is one story that to me just always seems so sketchy that I didn't follow it too closely. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, what actually was the extent of these injuries and were they just, I mean, it's true. I would not be surprised, although I don't want to be wrong in case anyone actually really suffered, but I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, yeah, uh, these are just bad headaches and, and that the culprit wasn't these crickets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think, but I think more importantly, like what, like you said, it's you just haven't heard like MSNBC ran with the story, and it sounded absurd when they ran with it, and you haven't heard them address it. And I think that speaks to, and I guess before we get into all your like the, because you wrote a really, really good piece for the Nation that I want to talk about, but I think it does speak to the fact that in this. Like right now, it, it's there. These media outlets are not. Um, there's like no accountability whatsoever. Um, and this reminds me, although the more absurd example than even this is the Guardian article. That like, if you want to talk about that by your favorite journalist. So you're referring to Luke Harding, who is a uh, reporter for the Guardian, the former Moscow correspondent there. I had a pretty um, interesting and, and kind of viral interview with him when I was at The Real News. I had him on to talk about his book, Collusion. And, uh, you know, listeners of your show are probably familiar with it. But in my opinion, he was not able to defend the contention of his book that there was indeed collusion between Trump and, and the Russian government. If you, if you haven't seen the interview, it's pretty entertaining and I think pretty illuminating uh, when it comes to the journalism standards that have that that have been used to propel uh, this Russiagate story so far. And his latest piece about Manafort that you're talking about, Rania, is a good example of that. He um, about six weeks ago, uh, as we're speaking, he reported in The Guardian that Paul Manafort went to the Ecuadorian embassy where Julian Assange is taking refuge and met with Assange three times over the course of several years. Uh, uh, the last one being right before the 2016 presidential campaign. And the suggestion there was then that Manafort, on behalf of Trump, was like arranging with Assange the details of their high-level uh, Russia-involved conspiracy to release stolen Democratic Party emails. I mean, 
on the face of it, it's the most ridiculous story because, of course, you know, that embassy is one of the most surveilled places on Earth. There, you know, there are British, right. uh, there are British officials watching it constantly. There's probably also other Western officials who they're watching it, including American ones. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, conveniently, the story from Harding included no evidence. It just cited this like really sketchy Ecuadorian intelligence document in, that the the Ecuadorian intelligence, which is which has you know um, differences of its own with Assange, and the Ecuadorian government right now is trying to basically kick Assange out. So it was just a really convenient story, and of course, predictably, it it fueled headlines across the West. MSNBC did many segments on it and taking it seriously. Uh, you know, everyone, you know, people like. Anchors and pundits were saying, you know, game over, ball game, smoke, smoking gun. But, you know, of course, as Glenn Greenwald has pointed out pretty tirelessly, he wrote a great piece on it. There's no evidence for it. And The Guardian, when asked to, you know, answer basic questions about it, has just ignored all requests. And Glenn, in particular, has been very dogged on this issue, but they just ignored him. And that's what it takes. That's what it takes to, you know, be a Russiagate uh, proponent these days is you have to... Uh, push wild claims and then ignore all the uh, very substantial countervailing evidence and then refuse to engage on the issue. And when Luke Harding came on The Real News with me, that was one of the few times when we had someone engaging and being, uh, being uh, like, uh, that was one of the few times when we had a, a Russiagate uh, peddler being forced to defend their own position. And you can judge for yourself the result of that. It really has, I mean, it really has become a feature, though, that after any of these stories are published, you get a correction within, like, 24 or 48 hours that really changes everything about that story that has been published, almost making it so that the outlet, if they were responsible, should just retract the story completely. Yeah, that's happened uh, many times. It just happened, as we're speaking, when it comes to the story with Paul Manafort. Um, and by the way, you know, like, even if, see, like, this latest story with Paul Manafort is that, so his, his attorneys have just uh, uh, issued a court filing in response to Robert Mueller, because since Manafort reached a cooperation deal with Mueller in September, Mueller has accused Manafort of uh, saying a bunch of lies in their proffer sessions, so misleading the special counsel. And when Mueller first accused Manafort of that, everyone was like, oh, my God, this is it. Manafort is lying to Mueller about the collusion with Russia. We're going to get the smoking gun. You know, M Mueller's got him. And, of course, because that was after when Manafort first reached the cooperation deal, everyone was like, oh, my God, Paul Manafort has flipped on Donald Trump. He's going to blow the whistle on the Trump-Russia conspiracy. So... When uh, Mueller then accused uh, Manafort of lying to him, the, people naturally thought that that meant that Mueller has caught Manafort lying about the conspiracy that Manafort must have been hiding from Mueller. But it turns out, uh, because, by the way, Manafort's case is not about Russia at all, but about Ukraine and Manafort's lobbying in Ukraine, he's convicted of tax and bank fraud charges there. It turns out that uh, Manafort's alleged lies were either about Ukraine or they were about like uh, things like whether or not Manafort lied about uh, a payment to like a consulting firm. So basically all these things that have nothing to do 
with Russia or collusion. The only thing remotely touching on Russia is this, and this is what has been the subject of so much hoopla just this week. So uh, in its filing, in response to Mueller, Manafort's attorneys reveal, and it's so complicated to explain, but it's, but it, it's worth going through. Uh, Manafort's attorneys reveal that Mueller has accused Manafort of lying to him about sharing polling data with a Russian national named Konstantin Kalimnik. So this is basically like the only like tangible Russian tie in Manafort's case about Ukraine lobbying, which is that he has a Russian associate named Konstantin Kalimnik. And Kalimnik once worked as a, once studied as a translator in a Soviet Union era military school. And for decades now he's worked as Manafort's fixer and mostly in Ukraine. And so uh, according to Manafort's attorneys, Mueller says that Manafort lied that he shared polling data with Kalimnik uh, in the spring of 2016. Um, and initially, the New York Times reported that uh, that Manafort asked Kalimnik to pass on that polling data to Oleg Deripaska, who is uh, a Russian tycoon, what we call here a, a, a Russian oligarch. Although, by the way, oligarch is a term that we only seem to use for Russians, not for Americans. But anyway. Um, but then the Times, as you say, Kevin, and this is an example of what you're talking about, the Times had to correct its story and say, actually, oh, no, sorry, it wasn't Deripaska, the Russian, that Manafort wanted that polling data passed to. It was actually two Ukrainian oligarchs. Uh, and But by the time that happened, everybody had ran with it. Uh, um, Josh, Marf Josh Marshall of Talking Points Memo, for example, he wrote... Um, this. He wrote, Trump's campaign manager was secretly sharing confidential campaign polling data with oligarch closely tied to Vladimir Putin, probably bigger than the Trump Tower meeting. And, you know, that was an example of making this out to be huge because the supposition there was that because Manafort wanted polling data passed to a uh, his Russian associate and then to a Russian oligarch, that means that Manafort wanted to share his the Trump polling data with Vladimir Putin. Now, a few things. So it turns out that actually he wanted this polling data shared with Ukrainians, not a Russian. But even then, it actually doesn't really matter. I mean, it shows how this rush to like include Russians is so prevalent and how it's so easy to get things wrong. But really, even if you know he wanted the polling data sent to a Russian, I don't think it really matters because the Times also revealed that most of the polling data was public. So in the spring of 2016, Manafort is asking for public polling data to be sent uh, to uh, to some Ukrainian oligarchs. It doesn't strike me as proof of anything. What it actually seems to be proof of is proof of, is more evidence in what Manafort's actual case is about. It's about, as I said, his bank and, uh, uh, bank and uh, tax fraud related to his lobbying in Turkey because Manafort was getting a lot of business, sorry, getting a lot of uh, lobbying in Ukraine because Manafort was getting a lot of business there. And the fact that he wanted polling data sent to some Ukrainians, I think, was just his way of trying to keep shopping himself, because at that time, he was in a lot of debt trouble. And he wanted to he wanted to show the, well, the, the, the big reason why he even took on the job as Trump's campaign manager is he wanted to get himself out of debt. So he wanted to basically show that he was useful to his clients and his former clients. And so that so showing sending some polling data, I think, was an example of that. And regardless, it, it was public. And so how this leads people to a collusion conspiracy is beyond me.
All right, so Aaron, um, let's let's get into your article that you you wrote, and I think the the best way to approach it is just you know you list out the key findings from when you went through these reports. And for people who don't remember, I'll just quickly set this up that that at the end of 2018 we had these reports that were supported by Congress, um, and uh, they were detailing allegedly uh, what had happened in the 2016 election. They claim they made claims about Russia and social media activity. Uh, they were done by, uh, these reports particularly were from the University of Oxford's Computational Pro Propaganda Research Project and the firm New Knowledge, right? And they were co-signed and supported by Congress. Is that right, Aaron? Uh, yes, they, these studies were commissioned by the Senate. Okay, and so then all of all of the contents of these were splashed around media and people made widespread assertions as they normally do with any Russia investigation story. But then you, as you are very good at doing, went and exploded a lot of the claims and looked at what was being uh, alleged about such uh, examples like suppressing the African-American vote, promoting Green Party candidate Jill Stein, recruiting assets to sow discord, and, you know, maybe the most favorite one of all, hacking the 2016 election with sex toy ads or Pokemon Go. So, you know, you, there was fun. Well, I will say I did, I did vote for Trump because I saw sex toy ads. <laughs> well, I, it's hard for me to keep track, Ryan, because sometimes it's because of Buff Bernie and sometimes it's because you saw a dildo on Twitter. It can be both. Okay. <laughs> But yeah, you know, I mean, th yeah. this was very important work that you did for the nation. So I, can you summarize and, and, and get into some of the key points um, that you were raising with this story? So, Kevin, first, let's just reflect on the fact that this article, I, I, I agree with you, it was important and it had an impact. It actually, I think, was one of the best received pieces I, I've written. It, it really circulated and it really had a lot of people writing me to thank me for it and to say that it changed their minds when it comes to to Russian social media. But think about the fact that it that this article had to be even written. I mean, honestly, it kind of blows my mind that somebody had to argue that, oh, actually, these juvenile Russian social media memes that no one actually saw, they didn't actually have an impact on the election, on the 2016 election. They didn't actually probably decide uh, the race between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. I mean, think about how crazy it is that that even has to be argued. I mean, because if you look at the content of all this Russian social media that we've been told for so long was sophisticated and, uh, you know, so discord and got people to, to route protest and fight each other in the streets, it's really, it's, it's a joke. I mean, um, and it's all what it looks like is just standard clickbait. I mean, whether or not the Russian social media workers had a preference for Trump, I mean, I don't, I mean, it looks like they did, but I just think like, who cares? I mean, do we have such contempt for average voters that we're gonna suggest that they, their votes could have been swayed by some like silly ads? But that really has been the sort of underlying assumption uh, throughout this, 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 this story about uh, Russian social media that's gone on for so long. And I think the fact that we now have these two Senate reports that give us the most detailed picture of these uh, social media operation to date, I think it's impossible to sustain that fiction anymore. Well, one thing I, I appreciated that you mentioned too is uh, that 
a lot of these claims that, especially the, I mean, it's just so crazy to claim that the Russians, these like, you know, few thousand dollars in random weird like ads, like including sex toy ads, and somehow swayed the election, also somehow managed to depress African-American turnout. As if we're now pretending like America is a country that makes it easy for black people to vote. It, it's so, <laughs> I mean, like, like the whole thing, like, the, like, I can't, like, it's hard for me to, 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 um, observe this part of this, this story dispassionately. Cause it's so to me blatantly contemptuous and, and racist, this idea that black voters could have been swayed by these dumb social media ads. And in the process, it also belittles all of the serious issues that that black people face, and the black people have been protesting. Like they they talk about the Russians, you know, having memes about police violence and how that could be, you know, was used to manipulate black voters, you know, and like it's like you know, uh, uh, David Axelrod, you know, Obama's former top strategist, he he said that uh, it's very likely that. Uh, that um, that Russian tactics were enough to suppress the vote in Wisconsin and, and Michigan. When exactly, Ron, as you say, I mean, th there's there's serious voter suppression going on, and yet we're talking about like dumb clickbait ads. And by the way, I mean, there's every indication to to that what this Russian thing was. It, it was just it was just clickbait. Um, reporters who have studied the who who have, who have reported on the this troll farm, the Inter Internet Research Agency, they call it a, a social media marketing agency. Uh, you can read about it in the New York Times Magazine from by Adrian Chen a few years ago before all this blew up and it became convenient to accuse us of being a Russian intelligence operation. But yeah, the underlying contempt that this shows to black voters and, and you know all voters, this idea that these dumb ads could have swayed their vote is just, it reveals so much more about the elites who are making these claims and does about anything else. It is the paternalism, isn't it? I mean, because underlying all of what is alleged and claimed, it, it coincides with all of this other, all these other things, like when people accuse Rania of being responsible or when they say Susan Sarandon or when they say that Green Party voters did it and they want to lock up Jill Stein because she isn't cooperating with a Senate Intelligence Committee. I mean, it, it's all just because of the same thing you're talking about here with um, what they're doing around black voters. There's a and I'll add to that. Well, also, I want to just throw in here, because this kind of goes along with this, is like proper not. Uh, I was tweeting out yesterday that like it was giving a list to people of, oh, these are slurs that are Russian propaganda. And it was like words like corporatism and neoliberal and imperialism. And I think one of them was Zionism. And it's like these words, if you see them, it's basically Russian propaganda. So that means that people who call, oh, neocon was another one. So now it's become like words that are actual words that have meaning, right? That people use like, you know, imperialism describes something. Zionism describes something. Uh, so it is like neoconservative. It's an ideology, neoliberalism. Like it's an actual thing. And now even like discussing anything that includes these terms is is tr they're trying to you know try and say oh this is Russian propaganda. Like it just makes a mockery of everything. What is going on right now is that we are being all subjected to a massive American disinformation campaign 
to convince us that we're being subjected to a Russian one. And the utility of that uh, is, is very clear. I mean, it's what you talk about, Rania. It's to taint dissent. It's to, you know, uh, smear people who challenge power in a meaningful way as being Russian dupes. It's to absolve failed liberal elites like the Democrats who, in you know, in Axelrod saying that that Russian social media might have depressed the vote, the, the, the black, the the minority vote, to use his, his term, in Wisconsin and Michigan. It's to excuse the Democrats who lost those states and the Clinton campaign in particular that didn't even campaign there. Um, and it's to, you know, keep drumming up tensions with Russia uh, in this, like, you know, sort of new Cold War atmosphere where tensions with Russia is profitable for, for a small sector of of the country, uh, but it's dangerous for not only the country but the rest of the world because you know we we're we're drumming up tensions with two nuclear powers. So this is a this 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 the, the consequences of this disinformation campaign um, are extremely serious. Now, there's an example that you you or there's something that you highlight in your piece for the nation that I'm not sure a lot of our listeners will be familiar with. I wasn't terribly familiar with it, but. Um, can you talk about the new knowledge operation that took place during the Alabama Senate race, which you thought was very instructive in showing how uh, the impact to our election from, from, from the Russian marketing campaign by IRA could not have had the, you know, could, could not be what people have hyped it up as? Okay, so uh, a quick anecdote. When I was in the third grade, one day in the schoolyard, some kids were throwing rocks. Or like there was a, there was an there was an allegation that some kids were throwing rocks, and so in response to that, some friends and I, we thought we could be heroes, and we formed a group called the Rock Stoppers, and we thought that we'd be like a patrol against against the rock throwers, but ultimately we we couldn't find any rock throwers, so what we ended up doing is just throwing rocks ourselves in the name of stopping the rocks, and that is what has happened here in Alabama, I think. This weird firm, New Knowledge, uh, which wrote one of the reports for the Senate, uh, in the uh, in the uh, 2017 Alabama special election for the Senate uh, between Roy Moore and Doug Jones, New Knowledge interfered in that race. They they uh, organized a basically like a a campaign to make it look as if Roy Moore, the Republican, was backed by Russian bots. They created fake pages uh, trying to target conservatives. Uh, and um, they spent $100,000 on that effort. And what's interesting about it is that, you know, they now say that that $100,000 was too small to be effective. It was too small to have an impact on a on a Senate race, on, on a 2017 Senate race. Well, the obvious question there, as I'd say in the article, is that if a $100,000 operation was too small to have an impact in one state Senate race 2017, how was a, you know, Russian supposed Russian operation that I think spent less money, uh, uh, big enough in it to have an impact in a 2016 presidential election. So the fact that New Knowledge even carried this out, um, and that it was you know, and that they say it was unsuccessful, is a pretty good indication that the, it was impossible for whatever this Russian social media operation was. It was impossible for that to be successful in 2016. Then it raises the fact that, like, what are these private corporations that have deep government ties doing, you know, uh, carrying out a deliberate operation to interfere with an election 
in the name of, 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 of like, of trying to like understand Russian tactics. I mean, it's pretty dystopian. And, uh, and we've since learned that it's, it, you know, that it, it's even bigger than we thought because they, you know, they also started a campaign, um, trying to, uh, uh trying to fool people into thinking that 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 someone wanted to introduce uh, no liquor laws into Alabama. So it's all very sketchy. And if you read, you know, what these new knowledge people want to do, if you if you look at what their goals are, they make it very clear in their own report and in their op eds and their public statements. What they want to do is, you know, they, they sort of suggest that we're vulnerable because we have free speech in the U.S. And what they want to do is, is what they call um, Increase the role of multi-stakeholders, which basically means if you read between the lines and you read what they say, they want to increase the synergy between private groups like them and government. They want more of a role in, in private entities uh, overseeing speech, uh, all in the name of combating you know, foreign, especially Russian disinformation, so that they want more of a role in policing content. And this goes back to what Rania was talking about, is they want to be able to decide what what speech is legitimate and what speech, what what political words can just be dismissed as Russian disinformation. So the the whole thing is, it's really dystopian. And, and, and the irony of this effort to uncover, you know, foreign government propaganda and to fight um, manipulation is really to actually increase those things on behalf of Western elites. You know, and that's like a, a bit of a good segue if you would, wouldn't mind talking about the Integrity Initiative, which hasn't gotten much attention, but is a whole scandalous affair, at least in the UK, and how it relates to all this. So recently, uh, some hack documents came out um, that show uh, that the British Foreign Office has been funding this uh, this. Th this this so-called charity initiative known as the Integrity Initiative, uh, and and its official mission is, is to counter Russian disinformation. Uh, but the hack documents reveal that actually um, not only does this get funding from the British government, but also from the State Department, NATO, and other Western government sources. Um, but it works closely with what it calls clusters of uh, journalists and academics across the West to push their messages. And one of their messages already has been to target none other than the British labor leader, Jeremy Corbyn. They've they've backed, they've amplified social media operations that paint Corbyn and his camp as dupes of the Kremlin. Um, and they've basically gone after other people uh, who they see as as being a threat. So, again, you have a disinformation, a Western disinformation campaign in the name of combating Western disinformation. And it's gotten some attention now overseas, but no attention right now in the West, except for basically, uh, you know, um, left outlets like uh, Mint Press, I think, has covered it. And also there's a great piece, a couple of great pieces on the Gray Zone Project uh, by Max Blumenthal, uh, where Max actually and his colleague in, in, in Britain, um, uh, who I used to work with at The Real News, uh, actually gained entry to the, to, to the in integrity initiative and you know it exposes the that that it's staffed by government officials and in, and in fact one of its members is a former volunteer on the Bernie Sanders campaign you know raising some questions there about whether or not you know to what extent is this thing perhaps I don't want to say for sure but perhaps targeting progressives in the US and, and Max 
has a few great pieces on that. But you know, it's an example uh, of of the dynamic we're talking about. You know, uh, in the name of countering Russian disinformation, what what's really happening is waging Western disinformation against progressives and authentic dissidents. And then, um, unfortunately, Rania had to drop off here because she's going to um, work on finding the place or the apartment that she's going to be living in uh, in Lebanon uh, for the rest of her her stay. So uh, she had to drop that's off. That, that's my fault because I was late. So. Um, uh, and that and and you don't need to apologize, Aaron. I'm just letting people know who listen to the show why uh, the voice of Rania will not be heard during the rest of this episode. She was not mysteriously kidnapped or or, or, or anything. Um, but I had a couple other questions before we we wrapped. Um, I, and I don't intend to keep you going much longer. But I did want to have you just broadly address what you think might be the risks to independent journalism or or alternative media that is posed by what you've been grappling with and confronting through your work, because we do see these these ventures. And I, I think, uh, and also in the last week here, when people listen to this show, um, there's another thing that Mint Press News has been calling attention to called um, uh, NewsGuard or NewGuard. Um, and uh, and, and it, again, in all of these ventures, you find like neoconservatives and center-left Democrats making alliances in order to uh, push these things that allegedly... Uh, are fact-checking or trying to verify whether news is real. So how about this? Let's let's break this down into two, two parts here. I'd first like to ask you what you think about the proliferation of fact-checking and how, how that might be used to uh, reinforce a lot of the, the mythology or propaganda around Russiagate. You know, I... I, I, I heard about that new that that new piece from Impress News about NewsGuard, but I haven't read it yet. But you know, on the surface, to the extent that we're handing over fact checking duties to sketchy uh, private entities, in this case, one that I believe is run by a uh, neocon who was instrumental in pushing for the Iraq War. I mean, it's just incredibly scary, and and it speaks to what one of the uh, outcomes, if not the goals of this entire Russiagate fixation are, which is to um, taint dissent and drum up support for the national security state that has been a large driver of Russiagate. And, you know, I'll also say, Kevin, that I'm actually bothered that this dynamic and um, it is is only being challenged from the fringes right now in the U.S. as I see it. I don't see big left progressive outlets doing any stories on this. Like the the show I used to work for, Democracy Now, I haven't seen them cover this issue at all. I haven't seen The Intercept do very much. I'm trying to do what I can in the nation, but it's like there's like there there's there's been a real pressure to conform um, under the rubric of Russiagate. That if you don't conform then you're somehow apologizing for the Russians, you're a Russian dupe, or you're apologizing for Trump. And the the impact of that has been to scare a lot of people who I think should be showing courage and integrity right now into silence because we all need to push back and we need to stand up to this sort of like creeping uh, um, censorship and this, uh, uh, more importantly, uh, I think this, this, this marginalizing of dissent and marginalizing of people who say, 
you know, we we shouldn't believe intelligence community claims on faith. We shouldn't worship the intelligence community, and we should ask for evidence. And increasingly, voices like ours are are being um, more and more pushed into the silence. And so I think as for those of us who consider ourselves people who have integrity and to consider ourselves to be progressive, we need to push back against it. Well, I, I'll make this my final thing. How, how do you view how easy it has become for uh, these powerful tech companies like Facebook or Twitter um, or even Google um, and then uh, you know, any other persons with influence, how easy it's become to you know, flag something and, and, and get it removed and, and censored? I, I'll mention that since we were off, um, during the holiday season, and it was the end of our show for the year, and now we're back. Uh, people we haven't been able to talk about with our listeners what happened when Rania's video uh, was taken down because um, she was talking about how Israel used Palestine um, as a weapons lab for testing its its um, offensive weaponry and and how it's and its uh, development and its manufacturing of of defense tools, etc. Uh, but then that was taken down, and of course, you know, we know that. Her shows within the now, and um, that has ties to to Russian media, and so that immediately gets flagged for censorship. So, I mean, you you've watched this unfold over the last years, and it's only intensified since 2016. So, I mean, I'll I'll ask you about that, and then any final thoughts you have as we wrap the show. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, what happened to to uh, Rania's video? Though I so so she got it put back up, right? It was restored in the end. It went back up, and I don't think it's a clear-cut example of what we're talking about here with like the RussiaGate hysteria. But but I do note that like the reason why it becomes very easy to target is because it is even though it's um you know you can say it's because people who want to protect Israeli occupation they have it flagged and they want it taken down, and that's really probably the culprit for its removal. But any of her videos could be taken down simply because of who she works for. Right. I mean, look, I'm not an expert on this topic, but you know, trends like uh, Facebook partnering with the Atlantic Council, this you know, uh, Washington think tank that is funded by NATO and uh, and governments around the world. I mean, it's like, what more? Do we need to to uh, convince us that this is a really that that Russia is being used for um, pretty nefarious purposes to to increase government control and and management of of information, and you know companies like Facebook are not going to stand up to it because you know they they have to you know they have interests before the government and they they need to play along in order to get you know. That's just how it works, right? I mean, I don't need to. I don't. I don't need to explain why. So the only the only people who are going to stand up to all this are the people themselves. And if we're all being pushed in a direction where challenging all this means we're apologizing for the Kremlin, or we're not taking seriously this existential Russian threat, or we're somehow defending Donald Trump, I mean, it's it's dangerous. And um, a lot of us, unfortunately, are are dropping the ball. And I hope that as more of these operations like the Integrity Initiative get exposed and journalists like you and Rania, Kevin, and Max Blumenthal and, and all of us who are pushing back, you know, keep doing our work, that, that more people will wake up. Well, I suppose quickly, can it work for people who are listeners of this show? And from your experience, can it work to go to like a Democracy Now! or to go to Real News or to go to 
um, any of these other shows that they might regularly follow and, and ask them to look into this story. Yes, the the real news and, and democracy, you know, happen to be two of my former employers, and, and I would uh, I, I'd strongly urge people to, you know, like whatever stories they think are important to to challenge them. I mean, like having worked at these places, you know, we uh, I think we are responsive to viewers' concerns, and and you know, and it's hard to stay on top of every single story, and so sometimes pressure from audiences can make a big difference. All right, Aaron. Well, thank you for joining us for this conversation. Um, and again, um, you can find Aaron's work at The Nation. Uh, he recently published uh, a piece at the end of December that was called New Studies Show Pundits Are Wrong About Russian Social Media Involvement in U.S. Politics. We'll be sharing that through our show account on uh, Twitter. And, uh, and that's it for this week's episode. Um, and, um, you know, Rania wishes you all well, and uh, we'll be back next week with another episode from the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. As we kick off the sixth season of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast, I'd like to thank all of our patrons who are still with us, and I'd like to take a moment to encourage people who are first-time listeners or regular listeners of our shows to become a monthly supporter. Each of our episodes are very similar to the show you heard this week with Aaron Mate. We like to invite guests on who would have a tremendous difficulty getting invitations to appear on MSNBC or CNN or various other mainstream news programs. And we aim to cut through lies and distortions that dominate a lot of our understanding of issues and current events. We usually rant, we talk about rather enraging topics, however, we usually try to find moments of levity and laugh a little bit during the show at some of what has got us down and depressed and feeling cynical, and there's usually a tug of war between us over whether we should be hopeful or despondent about the state of the world. We enjoy producing this show, but we can't do it without people like you and the patrons who we have supporting us on a regular basis. We have about 190 patrons. Once we reach our goal of 200, we plan to produce a very special episode that has been on our minds, and uh, we've wanted to do it for a long time. Uh, but I'd say for 2019, it would be tremendous if we could reach 250 patrons. And should we reach that number, we would find a way to reward all of you and show our appreciation because you make this show possible. You make it possible for us to do this in addition to our regular journalistic work. Ronnie Kalik, if you are not familiar with her, uh, produces videos for In the Now on a regular basis. And I'm producing work for Shadowproof.com where I'm managing editor. But this show we do... Uh, in addition to our regular journalistic work. And we've had a lot of success with people who support us and our monthly subscribers. And we'd like to encourage you, if you liked this week's episode, if you liked our finale episode, if you've listened to any episodes of the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast to give our show a chance and chip in a few dollars to help us keep the show going. So go to patreon.com 
backslash unauthorized disclosure. Once again, that's patreon.com backslash unauthorized disclosure. Thank you.